Hi everybody, this is Bill McGlynn, and John McKenna is here on the other end of a telephone line with me, and this is the RAF very first podcast. And uh, we thought it would be appropriate that, uh, since it is the very first podcast, to talk about the early days of the RAF. And so uh, John has agreed to do that, and we're going to spend a few minutes kind of diving on that topic. And uh, I'll do a little bit of interview leading, and John will, you know, take it wherever John wants to take it. But the idea here is that the RAF, um, you know, formed up in 2003 uh, as a legal entity, um, but things were going on before that. Right, John? So why don't you help us fill in some blanks? Well, I'll do my best. And uh, like you say, this is kind of fun to see how this works out. Um yeah, you're right. They, uh, legally, the organization was uh, formally legally incorporated in uh, late 2003, but there had been some early attempts to uh, form a group um, that uh, maybe had a little bigger presence that, uh, than the typical state pilots association. So a group of us got together from around primarily the Pacific Northwest, and we met a couple of times, uh, actually in Boise, uh, talking about what that might really look like to form a group. And probably it, it initially looked like maybe we would form a group of groups. Uh, we would take some of the best out of the Montana Pilots Association, perhaps Idaho. Uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Ron Brotz from Oregon. There was Tom Jensen from Washington. Carl Spielman from Washington. Steve Gertzie was from Utah. Um, there were people from Steve Swan out of Idaho was a part of that original organization. And try as we may, we could just never get things off the ground at that point in time. So, uh, But we did give ourselves a name, and it was called the BAF, as in the Backcountry Airstrip Foundation. Uh, still actually have a couple of denim shirts with that logo on them. And, uh, but, uh, we, uh, we, we just simply didn't get the job done back at that particular point in time. Now, who, who was sitting around the campfire at Schaefer Meadows and, and when did that happen? Well, let's fast forward to, that's forward a couple of years. So if we were to look at a timeline and I probably could dig it out, but those, uh, early meetings in Idaho were in the 2000 kind of a time frame. And they came on the heels, uh, Bill, of things in Idaho. Uh, I'm sure this is going to come as a big shock to some of the people who might listen to this. But they were really out of a response to some an issue known as the Big Creek War. And uh, we thought that perhaps there needed to be a louder voice than just the folks in Idaho. And uh, so here we are in 2020. Uh, still somewhat dealing with that, and I know they dealt with it before we ever kind of dived into it. But so if you look back, those original days were 2000, uh, and it was the summer of 2002 when a group of us uh, had been essentially uh, flying uh, into some of these backcountry strips, camping for a day or two, hiking, fishing, um, just generally enjoying the the backcountry and the fellowship that uh, came along with uh, flying airplanes and the places we could go. And we ended up on this, what I would say is the last couple of nights at Schaefer Meadows. Uh, and 
uh, it was uh, the summer of 2002. And were you guys all friends, or were you just acquaintances, or? No, no, we were we were good friends, um, and as typical, uh, somebody had said, "Let's go do this," and there were uh, a half a dozen of us, maybe more. And but at the end, it ended up being about a half a dozen of us uh, did the kind of the entire lap. We were at Schaefer Meadows, is where we ended up, but we'd been to Meadow Creek. Uh, we had spent some time over at Chamberlain Basin in Idaho. Uh, we'd, of course, stopped at Johnson Creek to say hello to whoever uh, was there. But uh, it was at Schaefer Meadow at the end of the trip when we were uh, reflecting on the good time that we'd had. And, of course, as we'd gone along, we, we talked about the issues that surround these places. And the, the real issue was that uh, nobody was – uh, acting as a uh, uh, sort of a, uh, a cohesive voice um, for for things that might take place, be they good or be they bad, at those those particular airstrips. For people like the backcountry horsemen and the river floaters and the, the hunters and the fishermen and uh, not many mountain bikers at that point, but there were a lot of people who had their oar in the proverbial water and uh, about the only time the aviation group got themselves involved in something is when trouble uh, sort of showed its face over the top of the hill. Uh, there was threatening of a closure. There was removal of uh, picnic tables or there was an action to be taken at an airstrip that was beloved by many. But um, the interesting thing was we just had never engaged and been a part of the process nor been recognized as a part of the process. So that's what we really saw was missing. And um, so we talked about it and thought we should do something about it. And we also uh, talked about it in in the vein of uh, what had been done or not been done a couple of years earlier in the early group and how that had sort of failed. So um, the group of us sat around and came up with a, what we thought was a uh, at least an initial plan. Yeah, what was the initial plan? Who was going to well, go we, do what? Well, um, for anybody who's heard the story, of course, like all good aviators, uh, after uh, a long day of flying and the weather was good and you're sitting there in your shirt sleeves around a campfire, there was uh, some alcohol involved, uh, probably more than was necessary. And... Uh, the ideas started to flow and they seemed better and they seemed more profound as the night went on. Um, and we conjured up this idea of starting a group that, uh, would, would encompass people from all over the country. And we would have a, uh, a place at the table when planning came about on airstrips and we'd open new ones and we'd fix up, uh, existing ones. And we were, uh, uh, like I said, by the end of the evening where there was very little, we didn't think we could accomplish. And, uh, so we formulated a plan to organize. And one of the people there who, uh, does not uh, drink, never did, uh, still doesn't was a guy by the name of Jerry King from Lincoln, Montana. And Jerry, uh, was taking good mental notes as Jerry always did. And 
he was making, uh, 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 formulating the plan in his own mind and uh, had the had the out framework of it outlined. And one of the things we knew we needed to do is to form a nonprofit organization of some form or another to to back us up. And so we all agreed that night that we would put in some money and somebody would go about and go forth and form the organization. We'd probably have to hire a lawyer. And at the end of the day, that uh, that's kind of where we left it that night. The next morning when we all got up, it still seemed like a pretty good idea. So when we went home, uh, Jerry King took his marching orders and he was really the guy that walked everything through the Internal Revenue Service and after a fairly involved process, got us our 501c3 designation. And uh, uh, we all put in, frankly, a, a few thousand dollars each so that we could uh, we could have some reality to the organization, pay a few bills if we needed to. And uh, that was uh, that was basically the start of it. It was uh, myself. It was Jerry Kane. It was uh, a guy by the name of Carl Spielman from Seattle. It was Chuck Jarecki from Polson. Uh, there were some others that were involved, such as a little just a touch later on was Dan Prill from Great Falls, from the Great Falls area, and uh, a guy by the name of Jerry Hover. The aeronautics director from Montana was a part of it, uh, Debbie Alke. Um, uh, so there were a half a dozen of us that took the, took the marching orders bill, and we we made something of it, and we formed the organization. And I think there were probably 10 members in the first year, Yeah, and uh, <laughs> that's how it all got started. So, you know, what do you think was different this the second time around. Maybe it wasn't even the second time. Maybe it was the third time around. What was different this time that it didn't work the first time, but this time it did? Well, probably what really what was really different was that we had recognized that it did. It was going to take some people just to say, "I'm committed. I'll do it. I got this. I'll go forward." Rather than say, "I'll look into it." Yeah. and being so disjointed. And that's frankly why we ended up incorporating in the state of Montana was not because there was anything unique or because we felt like it was a, a Montana organization. Uh, it was candidly because that's where the majority of the members were, or that that original group was, where we had resources. And frankly, we, we begged, borrowed, and stole our way through uh, that whole process. We found uh, a lawyer and uh, a guy by the name of Lee Stokes, uh, who's here in Bozeman, that uh, shepherded us through the early legal processes. and Who we um, still rely on today. Yeah, still use Lee today. And we had a, a, a Jerry King. Uh, I can't say enough about Jerry. He set the financial tone. And he was just such a diligent, do go-do-it kind of a guy that uh, he just literally dug into the entire internal revenue code and figured out everything you need to do to form a 501c3, filled out all the paperwork, um, shepherded it through, and uh, he did just yeoman's duty uh, in that regard. So I think the big difference was we were a group that had committed to one another 
and we weren't spending very much time trying to figure out when we were going to meet or what we were going to talk about. We literally would just have a daily dialogue with, and at that time it was all email about what needed to be done. And there was never any question about it getting done. Somebody would just say, okay, I finished my last task. I got some time. I'll go do that. Whatever that was. And, uh, by the end of 2003, we had the organization formally incorporated and kind of looked around, didn't quite know what that meant. And, uh, um, uh, there was a guy by the name of Ben Ryan called us and, uh, that probably changed the organization or, uh, set, told us who we were then and still to this day. Interesting. So what, who played what roles or did you guys just, you, you acted kind of as a, as a loose group of affiliates or were there, were there roles carved out as to who did what? Well, we, we, we gave each other, we gave, we gave one another titles. Uh, and strangely enough, nobody wanted to, uh, as one shouldn't supply as much of anybody. Nobody really wanted to be the president because they always perceived that to be the one that, um, did the work, but we had the, the necessary roles to fill the blanks or fill the squares. We had a president, a vice president, secretary, and a treasurer. And, um, uh, uh, and and as I reflect on it, yes, uh, the people did the parts that they felt they were the best at, and that got us very much started. Um, I was not uncomfortable in talking to people um, about various subjects, whether they were uh, putting this person together with that person, and that kind of how we got that part of it going, Jerry Kane was very good at uh, making sure the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed and the, the financials were uh, impeccable. Uh, Chuck Jarecki was um, uh, extremely diligent, along with a Carl Spielman out of Seattle, at creating uh, some of our very early uh, writings and some of our positions and um frankly made us look really really good um and not in a um not in a in a phony way but in a very uh a very realistic way they were they were doing tons of research to come up with uh the positions that we took on various matters and then came guys like Raul Muro who came along from New Mexico and had a lot of experience in the aviation world and Rawl uh, literally uh, shepherded us through how an organization ought to look. And then Dan Prill um, uh, took his engineering background and brought it to the table and brought uh, uh, order and semblance to uh, what had never been before. And, uh, of course... Nobody was uh, immune to fundraising. We all did that. And by that, I mean, we, we raised what money we could. We asked people, and it was literally uh, hand-to-hand combat. We went out and talked to people. I remember very distinctly uh, going to Seattle, Washington. Mike Todd out there hosted us all at his house. By that, I mean, we all slept on his hangar floor. And 
uh, slept in his living room and went to the big Pacific Northwest Conference. We met with uh, then-President Phil Boyer of AOPA, who uh, encouraged us along and said he had a check for $1,000 available to, to get us going and uh, what a boost that was going to be. But there was only one caveat. He uh, indicated, Bill, that uh, we needed to come back to Frederick, Maryland to collect the check. <laughs> and, <laughs> hey, you know, we might have been new at uh, the aviation organization business, but I knew it was going to cost more than $1,000 to go get $1,000. So um, we never did get that check from Phil, but I can tell you we got, we've got gotten, as you, you probably know, we've gotten – uh, substantially more in um, help both financially and uh, organizationally from AOPA through the years. They've, they've just been such a great friend and a great partner. And um, Yeah, yeah. Craig, Craig I mean, Fuller and Mark Baker, re- uh, really significant, I mean, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, Craig Fuller, we always joke he was when um, about his second day on the job, Tim Clifford and I, met him in Washington, D.C., and uh, uh, he still talks about it today as he wasn't sure what hit him, but uh, he was pretty sure he needed to be involved, and he did get involved, and he lent the strength of the AOPA organization to us as we were in those early formative years and kept us from being really dumb and doing stupid things, and, um, you know, and um, he was just such a great friend during his tenure, and then Along came Mark Baker, and um, that that friendship has continued, and it's become a very close personal friendship with me and you and others like us. And um, he's as much as one of us as anybody. And uh, all we really need to do, as you know, is ask, and AOPA helps. But you know, we're kind of jumping forward here. That's that's just uh, in those early years, everything counted. I mean, everything. Yeah. Yeah, the relationship counted. Um, every dollar we we raised counted, and I, I think that what it it did for us, Bill, is it built a culture for us. And and by that I mean we recognized from such a very early age that when we got a dollar, we needed to do the right thing with it. We we didn't have excess dollars to. To, to do anything that we didn't say we were going to do. And there were a few things we, we committed to people and uh, things like um, we said we would never sell their name uh, to um, we would never sell their name uh, to uh, someone for the purpose of uh, benefiting the RAF. And we never have. And we told them that when the, we wrote a, a letter to them or when we asked them for something or sent an email, would they do their best to listen because we wouldn't bother them with a bunch of superfluous information. We were just going to tell them what we thought needed to be told. And um, out of that came, uh, like I said, a culture, a culture of caring a great deal about our members and the people and building what has now become the RAF family and something that really evolved out of that was uh, this whole notion. And in those years, Tim Clifford was the guy that really, really 
burned this into our soul, and that was when there was ever there was a choice about which way to go on a subject, it was always take the high road. Uh, even if that meant that the organization wasn't going to get the most that they could get, be sure to take the high road. And that is clearly something I think we did. Uh, we do now, and I'm pretty confident it's so burned into our culture that we'll always, we'll always do. You know, um, I agree. And going back a little bit, to just to back up, what were some of those early tactics that you used? I mean... What did you guys specifically do to the, that you thought gave you some traction? Um, was it working with politicians and, and trying to educate them? Or, oh, sure. or was it working with pilot associations at the state level? Or what, what do you think had the most impact? Well, well I think all of that did. Uh, and and what one of the things that we noticed is that, and you, all of us have been there, when you're a part of a local association, be it even a statewide association, those associations tend to take on the personality or the character of whoever might be running them at the time. And usually the person who's running them is the one who is, at, uh, who is in the restroom when the vote was taken uh, as to who was going to be the president. We've seen that before. Yeah. yeah. yeah they come back and they go, hey, Bill. Guess what? And you go, oh, no, I think I don't need to guess. Uh, And we've probably all seen this. And it it isn't uh, unique to aviation, but aviation is unique in that there just aren't that many of us. Um, and, And that will, if I forget, come back to that on me because... That is something that's critical. I mean, we're not a big group of people, so we've got to be a polite group of people. Um, but some of the things that we saw were the lack of consistent uh, messaging. And uh, you could take a local state association and the messaging would have much the flavor of the current president or the uh, current driving force. And that person or persons might last a couple of years or even three or four, and then they would have done their turn in the barrel and off they'd go and do something else or sort of fade into the background. And in would come a new president, and the organization or the messaging would then switch. You start all over again. You start all over. And so one of the things we sought to fix or we thought a lot about was how do we how do we look like an organization that has durability? And it was that durability that really we believed uh, would, would win the day long term. And so we went to the forest service as an example, who we now know owns a couple of hundred airstrips around the country. And we started to engage with them and we didn't engage with them on uh, the brush fire that was burning at the most recent airstrip, so to speak, yeah. that we'd come to. But we started to look proactively and forward-looking. And that required a different mindset than, uh, I think, than a lot of people expect out of an association. Associations tend to take care of the 
here and now. And, mm-hmm. and frankly, they, they really can't deal as much with national issues because, for example, it would not be appropriate, I don't believe, that you would ask the Montana Pilots Association to take on uh, all the national issues with the United States Forest Service, as an example. Um, people in Montana might say, well, gee, I don't know that I really want my dues uh, to be um, used uh, in that uh, in that regard. Yeah, to help uh, people so, in New Mexico or Colorado or... Yeah, yeah. They, they would... They would um, uh, they would feel like that wasn't the best use of their money. Yeah. So uh, with that in mind, um, uh, I, I think that uh, it would be important that people understand that we always saw ourselves as a national organization. Now, initially, we happened to deal with a lot of Western issues just because they were close to home. We were familiar with them. We knew people involved with them. Uh, they were easy to uh, deal with both locally and even regionally. But we slowly and methodically worked our way onto the national scene. And, uh, and, and I think that's where we transitioned from being an organization that was largely known as a group of guys who sat on a campfire in the western part of the United States to an organization that is, uh, I think, today acknowledged and recognized as a national organization. Yeah. You know, looping back to the point that you made about the way that you do this is is vitally important as much as what you do. Um, you know, thinking through that, I'll bet there were a lot of awkward times that you found yourself working with pilot associations and whatever who probably thought, what are you, what are you guys doing? You know, why, why do you think this is important, right? Um, but also having the humility uh, that when you went into some of these meetings with a public land manager that you didn't try to go in and, and make threats, right? Well, we, there were three things that we determined, and this came about as a, a result of, uh, it wasn't, again, it was not necessarily by accident. It was um, uh, very deliberate that we became, um, uh, we did three things. We were always polite, which kind of goes to your humility and your being humble. Uh, We were persistent, and um, we went back frequently to uh, places we thought were going to bear fruit, and we were professional. We always had a, a good story to tell. We were always respectful. And we were uh, uh, never, to our knowledge, condescending or uh, accusatory in our approach. And I think that really set us apart from others because when you're one of those organizations that's operating in the here and the now, that's you tend to be uh, very reactive. And you don't start to think proactively. You don't start to think about where you should be one, two, three, four, five years from now. Um, and that became, uh, in our world, uh, who we thought we needed to be. It was pretty clear to us, those that kind of got started, and I think it's pretty clear to the current uh, uh, organization that uh, 
anybody can see the problem of right in front of them. It's what do you do about uh, being smart enough to see what's out there five, 10, 15 years from now. Yeah. Uh, so you, you don't accomplish much five years from now if you uh, are, you know, brutalizing the person you're sitting across the desk from uh, today. Yeah. And something else we learned uh, that we all know from business and we all know from just life is that is the person you're talking to today, even if they leave where they're at today, uh, they're very likely to show back up someplace else. And as we've aged as an organization, we find that in spades. We find uh, um, mid-level forest service people who today are in senior management positions. We find folks at the BLM uh, who now work at the National Park Service. We find folks today that were um, politicians that are in private in the private world. Or So that being polite, that being professional, and that being persistent has paid off. So if you think of it in those four Ps, you know, being polite, yeah. persistent, professional pays off. Yeah. And that it has. Plus people like Ron Normando, right, who came into the organization and, and oh. truly understood <laughs> how these organizations worked, right? And how Absolutely. They, and how they thought. Um, oh. Ron Normando was our first state liaison and he really don't, I don't think that he really knew what that meant. And certainly we didn't. Um, we had no idea. We just, we said, well, that's, we need a title for somebody. And somebody says, he's a liaison. And that seemed like a good, good, little bit, a little bit more formal and maybe even a little bit higher brow than just, you know, uh, a state representative or something. So we, we ran with it like so many other things we ran with that uh, um, that uh, would appear as though we were intentional, but they really weren't. But Ron knew the Forest Service and the BLM and the public land management process backwards, forwards, and in fact, not only read the book, but wrote the book in many cases. So uh, yeah. we took advantage of that, and Ron Normando... Uh, was, again, one of those people that we didn't go into a public meeting in a very, uh, in a blustery sort of a way. We went in with uh, good information and we were well prepared. And that was a big difference. Once again, a differentiator between us and sometimes as we've all been to public meetings and I keep going to that. And the, the audience or the people there to complain or to say their piece um, are not necessarily very uh, informed on the matter. They're just mad about the, mad about the issue. And they perhaps don't know all of what's going on on the side and in the background. And uh, We pilots, we have a, kind of a, a unique ability to think because we have a pilot's license in our pocket, it gives us a right to do a lot of things that... Um, uh, that maybe we, we don't have the right to do or uh, that we are in some way superhuman. And of course we are, but at the end of the day, I don't, I don't know that that's really, doesn't, doesn't really mean much to a lot of people other than ourselves. Well, you know, clearly, clearly the strategy, I mean, uh, I guess it wasn't a strategy. It was more of just the culture 
that you guys advocated and and walked the talk. It clearly it clearly made a difference because in two thousand seven, right, Russian flat became a reality uh, thanks in part to Gail. What was the chief's name? Gail. Um, Gail Kimball. Gail Kimball, right? Who stood that up. A, that was a funny. That was a funny story. Tim Clifford and I went to meet. Uh, then the chief of the Forest Service, Tim, Tim, who also made a huge difference in DC, right? Because he was, oh, he did, yeah, and Dan and, and Dan and Dan Prill. Prill, too, yeah. I, I mean, Dan Prill uh, came out of retirement, <laughs> and in fact, uh, I think it was on the second trip when he met current board member Pete Bunce, um, we, we got invited to go to a uh, uh, a reception with all these manufacturing people called Gamma. And uh, Dan had secured that invitation through their then publicity director, which was uh, uh, a young lady by the name of Katie Pribble. And we got invited to this reception, and Dan had retired oh, some time before, in the year before, and he'd gotten rid of every suit and good pair of shoes. And so he was always very well, but he showed up in D.C. in his his best khaki pants and a pair of, uh, pair of cowboy boots. And he didn't feel like that was appropriate to go to this reception that night. So off he went and it was like Clark Kent stepping into the phone booth. He came back from men's warehouse with a brand new suit and tie. And so Tim Clifford and I still laugh about that, that, you know, um, and that, that, that kind of embodied the sort of, uh, volunteerism and the commitment that people had. You go back to that and you said, what was the difference? Nobody had to tell Dan Prill that he should, uh, you know, look sharp, be sharp for this uh, event. He just did that on his own. Nobody was paying Dan Prill, John McKenna, or Tim Clifford's airplane tickets and hotel bills at that point in time. <laughs> Those checks were all being written out of our own pockets and um, largely still are in many cases today. <laughs> yeah, um, so there was a lot of that kind of thing that went on. But back to the Gail Kimball thing, Tim, Tim Clifford and I felt it important to get to know the chief of the Forest Service. We uh, the first, the first female chief, right? Wasn't she the first? I female think, chief? I think she was. Yes, I believe so. She, and I, yeah, and I was, I was pretty impressed. We were sitting in her office, and she explained the desk that was there it was a desk owned by uh, Mr. Pinchot, who was the first <laughs> chief of the Forest Service, and that's that desk is still in the chief's office. And anyway, we were having a conversation about backcountry flying, and she was just nodding her head very sort of uh, uh, in agreement and seemed to understand what we were talking about. We were telling our story, and, um, you know, not even looking over her shoulder, but on her shoulder, on her credenza behind her, was a picture of her husband, which she then pointed out, uh, just a wonderful guy. Um, and, uh, and she and her husband standing in front of what was immediately recognizable to me as a, uh, a Cessna 185 and um, the um, the uh, the look on Tim Clifford's face and mine when she said yeah I understand what you guys are talking about she said um, we own a 185 and when I'm not here in Washington DC she said we are uh, out landing at backcountry airstrips uh, 
unloading our hiking boots and our hiking poles and going for a hike. And I think you could have heard a pin drop in that room. (laughs) But even that wasn't easy because all of a sudden, Gail Kimball felt like she had an even higher degree of responsibility to speak uh, whatever she was going to do on behalf of the backcountry community because uh, there were those of us that uh, she wanted to make sure she was not over-representing uh, yeah, pilots. what the aviation community was. She wanted It's kind of like being, being the coach's kid, if you please. Yeah, uh, You had to perform at a higher level. But uh, she was very instrumental. She wrote some uh, key memos to people in the Forest Service that uh, just outlined what backcountry aviation was all That we still about. use today, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, Tim Tim Riley said this the other day, which was, he's always amazed at what a wealth of of documents and information that we have. It's like, don't try to create them yourself. Just go to the library and pull them out. They're they're still relevant. They're very useful. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, she one of the lines that I remember in her memo was, "Backcountry aviation is an appropriate method of access." on right. United States Forest Service lands. Which we repeat and like a mantra. We're, <laughs> yeah. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yep. So um, th- th- that's kind of how we got into it. And, and, and that led us, whether it was, once we started into the Washington, D.C. part of the, the equation, we, we started to figure out that a lot of the decisions that are made uh, are made not necessarily right there at the Forest Service, or right there at the at the, the lower levels. And, and a lot of people want to know, why do you spend the time in D.C.? And candidly, we do because uh, the what we want to do is when a district ranger or the local person wants to be cooperative, we want to make sure that that they uh, they know that we have told our story at the levels above them so that they don't have to go do that on our behalf. Right. And, they get, and, and that they're covered from the top. They're covered. Yeah. 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 And uh, suffice it to say, that's pretty darn helpful to them. Yeah. Yeah. You and I have heard that personally, that that's a, yeah. that's a good way to, uh, to do it because then they know that they're not breaking new ground. This is something that's already been, discussed and you know and has uh, been somewhat authorized well and more as as important as as all of that as as an organization we understand how these things work um yeah uh so when we're talking to somebody at the uh, about whether it's in the forest service or not which is a a general having that experience is useful yeah and Frankly, no other aviation organization has that experience. Right. Um, I mean, AOPA certainly does when it comes to lobbying or uh, advocacy work within the issues they're involved in. But no other organization has the background, the depth, the information about um, recreational aviation or backcountry aviation or whatever we want to call it that the Recreational Aviation Foundation does. Yep. Well, John, that's a perfect place to stop. That was a perfect quote. <laughs> and I think that's... Well, I think, 
an ideal place I, to probably close. I think that's great. And maybe we'll see if there's any interest in it. And if there is, we'll perhaps go and tell some other stories. That's right. There are a whole bunch. There's a whole list of stories that we could tell like this. And uh, since people are, are unfortunately right now have time on their hands to do to listen to things like this, it could be uh, it could be helpful, right? Sure. And you know, I mean, I think Bill, if they don't know the people who might pick, uh, might take the time to listen to this, I think the one thing that we, you and I, have always felt: pick up the phone, call Bill or I. Yeah. Call exactly. anybody on our board. Uh, reach out to an REF member and. Um, uh, we that's how this organization was built one person at a time and uh, everybody's important and so hey yeah. let's see where this goes and uh thanks bill appreciate thanks, your time and yeah awesome we'll talk soon